Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. I'm here with Thea Lenarduzzi, who's wearing a full coat, yep. despite it being indoors. Yes. Uh, I've not set, I just want to be clear, I'm in a t-shirt because I don't feel the cold, but I don't want people to think that I'm patriarchically <laughs> setting the temperature. Yeah. <laughs> to minus one. But that's the thing, isn't it? That they do think that it's, rooms are designed for male... Well, I, they don't think it. It's, it's just true. historically they were. Yeah. But I have not set this room temperature. No, no. But I some can, other man... confirm that Stig has not imprisoned me in a cold box. Of By the patriarchy. <laughs> but, but the patriarchy more broadly has. The patriarchy, yeah. M- more broadly, yes. I think that's probably still the case. I wanted to ask you a question about Alf, because I feel that we, we've... We've raised him up as a key feature yes. of this podcast. He's almost like a third, third presenter. Present. Yeah, and, and to be honest, some people, to some people, it's the best and only good bit of the <laughs> podcast. Uh, so I mean, it was a shame if we don't mention him. Uh, you've got some news about him, haven't I you? I have. It's big news. Big it's news. Big, big news in his news. little world, although I don't imagine he cares very much. No. Um, he is, in fact, a rare breed. How do you know? Um, because someone got in touch having seen uh, a picture that, that my husband posted saying our lovely... Um, Immodestly. Our, our, our lovely Heinz 57 uh, rescue Mongrel. dog. Yeah. And what is he? Um, he is, in fact, apparently, a Berger Picard, which is uh, a, a sheepdog from Picardy. Yeah. Uh, that some date back to 900 AD came over you've with got the Franks. A, of course you've got a continental dog. I mean... <laughs> Of course. Well, I mean, yeah, he's rescued from Romania, so you yeah. can't really get more content. No, and is he pedigree then? No. No, but he's, he's got other bits in it. But him. it's just strange. I mean, who knows how that happens? It's an incredibly rare breed. There were, I think, 40 in the UK. and oh, they almost They were almost wiped out um, by two consecutive world wars because they were they mostly lived on farms in, in northern France. And so then not the Somme, place and to be, yeah. exactly not the best place for them. So, so this is this is a ridiculous thing, and he doesn't care, and we don't care. But it's just it's nice. quite funny. That is a bit of historical. <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I love that. Um, how do you say it? Uh, Berger Picard. Berger Picard. 
Lovely, lovely. Uh, get your cheap subscriptions to the TLS if you haven't got one already. If you live in the US or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19. It's five notes for five issues. You could say fairer than that. And speaking of the business of producing words for cash, this week's paper has a journalism bent. Alex Clark has been delving in the archives of Granta magazine, which is 40 years old this year. What does she learn about how to edit a literary magazine? No, seriously, I'd like to know. Uh, we've also asked a whole bunch of TLS contributors to nominate their favourite magazine, those endangered species in the modern world of clickbait and revenue harvested by those amoral leeches at Facebook. We'll talk that over with Catherine Morris, an editor here at the TLS, and Ros Deneen, Minister of Fun. Plus, Lydia Davis talks about doing her garden. She does it in a literary way, obviously. Now, what is your favourite magazine? If you didn't think immediately of the TLS, shame on you. This week we, or rather Catherine, because it was her idea, asked some TLS contributors to nominate their favourite magazines and why. And we got a lot of titles and lots of reasons. Nancy Campbell mentions the joy of a magazine arriving by post, but not too frequently, which may be a finger wag in our direction. And Miranda France, the thriller tenant on the sound of a magazine dropping through the letterbox. But what about digital versions? They mean that we can all read more widely, more easily, against one's inclination, as Lisa Hilton puts it, or with more ready proximity to a distant location. But as Benjamin Markovitz says, you can't collect websites. Magazines are also important as nostalgic markers, central to both Keith Miller's memory of his sustained pash on the music press in my teens and early 20s, and Roy Foster's recollections of the surprisingly raunchy short stories in Argozy. We got some wild and wonderful suggestions too. Dennis Duncan gets his inutilist research from the organ of the London Institution of Pataphysics. Barbara King learns about everything from pig personality to pinniped, seal memory from animal cognition. Happily, she does admit to a fondness for entertainment weekly too. She should talk to Frances Wilson, who's been enjoying Hello magazine, and someone in the piece gratuitously insults the LRB. We'll get to all that with Catherine and Roz too. Hello, hello. Hi. Um, Kaz, it's a really nice idea. How keen were people to share their magazines? Did people say, oh yeah, I really want to talk about something? Was it sort of yeah, personal to really them? really keen. About three or four people responded by saying, oh, that sounds really fun. And I I think that comes through quite nicely in the pieces themselves. There's quite a strong uh, vein of nostalgia, as you said. Um, it, it is nostalgic, isn't it, I think? Yeah. What, what? Uh, Benjamin Markovitz, he, he remembers the, the shelf of uh, National Geographic's in his grandparents' house, and uh, he had a ritual of uh, reading the new issue of Sports Illustrated with a 12-pack of Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and he's, a, he's a giant basketball player of a man. Benjamin oh, is Marco. he? Yeah, he, yeah. Was a very, he was a good basketball player, so I can he can take his donuts. I think yeah. happily <laughs> without without. Uh, uh, it was important to you. anyone here have a nostalgic memory of magazines. I'd forgotten about Smash Hits. Did you honestly read Smash Hits? Of course. Did you put the posters up? Of course. Did you? Right? Yeah, yeah, actually, I'd forgotten that I'd done that, but yeah, I did. <laughs> Any posters you want to remember? I mean, I'm sure I had some take that ones. Um, yeah, I had Smash Hits and what was it called? Was it called Sugar? Oh, so you read teeny girl magazines? Yeah, when yeah. I was a teeny girl. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what were they, What do you remember of them? Were they good? Um, 
I think that so much of what I got out of them then is all done. I mean, obviously, I thought they were good then. It's all done on Instagram now. Yeah. You know, the whole the whole thing that because you're going there for looks and ideas and celebrities and then they have all the hair products and all that stuff and the whole thing is done on Instagram by the celebrities themselves now. But I wonder how that my parents whenever they'd come to England or when I'd come to England um, would bring back issues of do you remember Ms magazine? Yeah. Um, oh vague, yeah. And I don't remember any of what I read except for one feature which was I think three pages and it was all about puppy farms that sounds like pretty tough journalism and it was amazing yeah that was probably the first serious journalism I read and, and yet I can there was still a kind of moral the panic ab- and but there was a kind of moral panic about these magazines weren't there because there was I think the Daily Mail would often harumph over the fact that I they mean, had probably but position of the, didn't they have position them, of the that week was, that Did they have now posi- magazine and that yeah. and it was position of, it was aimed at 15 year olds and yeah. I was going that's illegal it's completely inappropriate yeah yeah and Teen Vogue it made me think of that was German Teen Vogue became big in the American election do you know Teen Vogue oh yes because they had proper journalism they had proper politics it was really but but then it's gone online and that's seen in some ways as a failure sort of not being able to sell but that that doesn't feel right I wonder whether because of things like Instagram and and the readers of someone like I don't know Vogue or whatever would can now get so much the same stuff from their social media I wonder whether it's made the magazines do more of the really good writing and really good essays. So in Vogue now you have like Sadie Smith, um, Eva Wiseman does this amazing column. Do you read Vogue? No, but I have seen these pieces and they're online. But I wonder whether Vogue and and publications like that have gone almost more wordy yeah, in the that's face interesting. of Instagram. Kaz, I've got an embarrassing thing I read. Do you have any magazines you read? Did you read magazines growing Not up? Not really. Um, as I mentioned the other day, I was. I remember being beside myself with excitement at joining the Funday Times Club. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I got the Funday Times. Yeah. I was in the Funday Times Club. <laughs> Do you that. remember what it involved? I don't. Um, uh, there was a bookmark. I remember that much. Well then, yeah. Kaz, that's <laughs> the most excited I think I've seen anyone ever be, more or less, on really this podcast. Really on brand as well. Yeah, well it is. Yeah. Part of the, I read heavy metal magazines magazines uh, which again hardly don't exist anymore but they used to be um, Metal Hammer, Krang and one called R.I.P. I remember as well it was all sort of tough long-haired men playing guitar but there were kind there was a kind of a romance to them Theo and I were talking about this elsewhere yeah. where they could afford to send someone to go off drinking with guns and roses or whatever and that would have cost you know thousands of pounds to send someone to LA and pay all the expenses and all the hotel bills and yet they did it and do people do that now? I don't know. Maybe they. I mean, I suppose there's just a, there's just fewer big magazines now, aren't there? Yeah, and I think lots of that expensive but, stuff is done in places like the New York Times. Go and do those expensive yeah. celebrity profiles and stuff. Now it used to get in places like I suppose Vanity Fair used to be the place for that. Someone yeah. has a go at Vanity Fair in this, don't they? Yeah. Kaz, um, uh, it was Bernardine Evaristo. Oh yeah, the Booker Prize winner. I used to be a big fan of Vanity Fair when it had the money to produce epic features, even though I disapproved of its relentless whiteness and preppiness, which it seems to be a fair comment. I've been reading about Jonathan, because I'm reading Jonathan Franson again, I was mm. talking about the corrections. And if you look at him and Tom Wolfe and people like that, they made their names writing for Harper's and Rolling Stone mm-hmm. and Vanity Fair probably. So there was a whole place where, where I mean, I'm sure the whiteness argument from Bernadine Everest though is very true, that it was a certain type of person who got that. But does that exist? I wonder if that exists now for, for writers. Is there a place to go and get loads of money 
or good money to go and write beautiful 8,000 word pieces of journalism? There's certainly much, much less of it than there used to be. And it used to be, like you say, a sort of platform where writers, they had really good editors and writers like Franzen were sort of developed on these, what we would now consider to be quite an unusual platform for a literary figure to, yeah. to start off on. Well, Playboy was the other thing was, yeah. it was, mm, it used to be. That. I never quite get that, but that's true, isn't it? That Norman Mailer yeah, wrote for Playboy. Yeah, amazing writers. Did anyone want to read any magazines based on recommendations or in here? Kaz, what was your favourite well, one? Well, I, I, the one that sprang to mind was Inventory, but I realised that I'm actually quite happy not to read that magazine. I just <laughs> really enjoyed there. reading Keith Miller's <laughs> what's description. Inven- what's Inventory? Um, I'll read a bit out. He says, um, It was set up by a ragged, trousered band of art school postgraduates in the mid-1990s and sustained in the face of widespread indifference for maybe four years. Between its buff covers adorned with bravely unstylish typography, the effect was of some discredited Egyptologist quarterly vanity project, it made space for yammering pub sociologists, lunatic testaments harvested from phone boxes, neo-Dadaist bricolages Stanley knived from magazines, peri-digital robotext, and perhaps a few too many of what would later be called stands of the great Ian Sinclair, neurasthetic jeune homme sérieux in stout boots, undertaking programmatic journeys through seething London streets. I don't want to read that. <laughs> Nor do I. Is, I, think, I think with a lot of these magazines, not these specifically, but with a lot of magazines and journals, you don't necessarily want to read them, but you want to know that they're there. But and then and then you see you see the rise of this kind of subscription as donation phenomenon, where people don't cancel their subscriptions, but just yeah, just continue paying even if even as the issues you know build do up. Do people do that with the TLS? I mean, probably. Bernadine Everister mentions that she subscribes to Muslexia and um, Poetry Review. Oh well, there you go. Which yeah. I can never find the time to read. Yeah, but it's um, a kind of. It's but a, she wants to support it because it's important. Do yeah. you think we feel more attached to hard copies? Do you think that um, what seems to have happened? I mean, Lise Hilton says we can read against our inclinations a bit more because you don't have to subscribe to a magazine to read a couple of articles on it. Do you think that's a healthy thing that's happening, or do we actually lose a bit of the the loyalty? I mean, I still have some some cop- like a shelf of copies of old magazines. Things like Granta is a really nice thing to have. M plus one, I have some of those, and I have some you know, an issue of the first issue of Love magazine or whatever. And they are, like, they're really... Does that still exist? I don't know. But mm. I have one beautiful issue. It's stunning. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that you know, it's quite nice to have a few. Do they feel old-fashioned, old fa- old fashioned, I wonder, as, as a thing? Do they, in the same way that art, they feel... Um, that's not in terms of dispraise, not least because, you know, we are a magazine, but they feel an artefact of an age where people valued something tactile and we're moving ever f- further away from that age maybe but it's also it's different to the book in that there's a dynamism with magazines and journalism that you can't have as much with books and part of the appeal we were talking about this earlier about i mean i i don't have any i don't think i have any active subscriptions at the moment um and what i love best is going to a place and that's quite often a pub quite often in the north because there seems to be a really strong culture of, of this but just reading whatever I find so there's loads of zines lying about and and little magazines and, and you know that sort of thing and that's a really exciting world 
where you're it's, it's all discovery rather than rather than choosing to take out a sus- subscription yeah. to something that you know you will enjoy you want to have the, the variety it's the lucky dip i suppose i think Lynn murphy makes a really interesting point she says uh, nowadays i flit among online subscriptions reading nothing from cover to cover it's a loss in that i no longer get to know the editor's voice from the page to page now it's just the writer in view so the whole vision of the project is important it's not just individual voices i that's true when i first read private art I didn't have a clue what was going on because you end up with codes and kind of running gags and things like that. And one of the pleasures maybe uh, is the clubbiness of it in that you're part of a gang and you're getting the same thing. But that can also feel kind of constricting after a while. So Mm. I don't know whether it's a good or bad thing, but that's an interesting point. If you only read everything because someone's shared it on Facebook you might massively broaden your experience. So you might get something from Teen Vogue and you might get something from The Spectator without ever wanting to, or even being likely to subscribe to either of those things. And maybe that's good, but do you miss it? Uh, yeah. Maybe that's right, maybe you miss something. You do, I think, because you, you, as, as, as you just said, you lose like, the, edi- the editor's voice and the editor's vision. I get a, Is that a, true, do you think? I think so. I get a subscription to The New Yorker, which was a present, and it's the best present I've ever had. And every issue, when you have it in your hands, you can sort of see there's one piece that's going to move you, one piece that's really in-depth. The flow and the selection in each issue is something that you miss if you just go online and click onto the things that mm. you'll want to read. Yeah, and, and at the TLS, a lot of thought goes into... Mm. Yeah, exactly. E- there are echoes and... In, and you try yeah. to do it, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm interested whether people actually appreciate that or not. Mm. I feel like in an, in an era of... It's a nice gift, I think that's right, but um, does it feel like you're standing for something? I I just wonder whether it becomes more than the basis of actually enjoying it. You think, if I'm a subscriber to The New Yorker, it says about something about who you are. I'm struck by this, probably magazines out there, I'm not going to name the one that immediately occurs to me, which is probably little read, but subscribed to, because in doing so, you're saying, I am that person. Does that matter? Yeah. yeah. Does that matter? I mean, it's sort of it gets about being part of a club again, isn't it? Maybe. And maybe people want to be part of a club. Mm. Um, Neil Mukherjee, he wants to talk about the Boston Review, and he, he so he likes the Boston Review, but he, he begins with what could only be described as a gratuitous pop at the LRB, which it would be remiss of me not to read out. Boston Review is what the London Review of Books aspires to be but will never be because it is hectically caught up in perpetuating its own exclusionary politics while talking the left liberal progressivist talk. That originally had the phrase self-fellating in it, which was uh, edited for reasons of taste and should never be brought into public. And now brought back into the public domain. I have done, but uh, Neil Mukherjee was happy for the accusation of self-fellating to go onto the public record uh, for reasons of taste uh, and editorial tone. So important in a magazine, I think we can agree. I think people do feel strongly about this stuff, though. I mean, I, I got the sense in all of this. Catherine, that this passionate, this is people, people want to make the case for things. Yes, definitely. And I I think actually a good example of this was Yasmin Seal, who wrote about Badoon, which is a a magazine of arts and culture from the Middle East. And so she began her article, I forget the details, a friend's house probably in the late 2000s, but the feeling of the first encounter remains vivid, a thrill of recognition, of belated thirst. People often don't know what they want to read until they read it. And before I found Badoon, I didn't know I craved a magazine in English written by people who spoke or half spoke other languages at home. And the whole piece is a sort of love letter to, to this magazine, which she said had a formative influence. Do you know what it makes me think of? Because we, we, we're about to relaunch the website of the TLS, we're about to re- redesign it. One of the points about relaunching the website is serendipity. 
in a magazine seems to be really important. Everything is based, this world now, the modern world, on things you already know you like. So if you're following people on social media who recommend stuff, they're recommending to your taste already, or you've already made a decision either consciously to read against yourself or to read into your own taste. So it's either something very different or it's something completely attuned to you. And what you lose then is a sense of multiplicity. And it strikes me editing the TLS and one of the things that we can do serendipity is really important isn't it because you don't know what you don't know without wishing to get all rumsfeld about it (laughs) but no and stumbling across something seems to me to be a real Mm. it's a real joy in life you know like when you go to a a secondhand bookshop and you pick up a book you know i found gore vidal never having really heard of him when i was about 19 and there just happened to be a gore vidal book in a charity shop for a pound i bought it and then i read everything he he wrote that's is that a virtue here the sort of attic mentality of you know you can prod around and, and find things i think that's that's one of the things i enjoyed about this feature actually that you're not commissioning a particular piece you don't know what they're going to to write about no um, and did did you expect to get hello magazine no it's thrilled from a couple of people in fact no Fran- yes, was yes it? that's right somebody else mentions it Who did they it? francis wilson you- loves it she says it's high camp comic value second to none the oleaginous interviews, the footballers' wives, the celebrities in ball gowns posing in spanking new fitted kitchens and the infamous Hello Curse. The Hello Curse is like the Strictly Curse, that they do make a big flurry about a marriage and then it ends. And oh, then it ends. I see. But when I started in journalism working at the Press Complaints Commission, Hello Magazine and OK Magazine were, I can't tell you how big they were. Yeah. They used to spend three or four hundred grand buying up people. So when someone got married, someone in the, that, that sort of super footballery um, reality TV fame levels, mm-hmm. it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. And there used to be legal cases. Someone had, I can't remember if it was Hello or OK, I had um, the wedding of uh, Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Oh, yeah. and, and she was too tall. She was too tall. They, 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 um, sorry, go, finish your story, yeah. then I'll tell you the story. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what they did was they had it and they paid a million quid for it. And then one of their rivals snuck in and took pictures. And she sued for privacy and said she was violated by the second magazine taking pictures because she'd commercially sold them to a first magazine. And she won, I think. She, they had to pay damages. But the story I remember from that is the reason she was so upset about the pictures that leaked to the second magazine was because in them, her husband looked much shorter than her. Because in, in real life, <laughs> in he real is life much shorter is. than her. Yeah. But in the carefully <laughs> staged photos yeah, for Hello, yeah. there was a sort of parity of yeah. height. But the other magazine had sort of shown the other magazine standing on. <laughs> standing on a box. <laughs> this is where everyone comes for their celebrity gossip. This yeah. podcast this right pod, yeah. here. But this was a big this and it's a spanish magazine originally hello hola isn't it, mm, it mm. what's what's in italy what's the magazine culture like oh there's gente is a big one what's gente, people pe- oh, and what are we sort of tabloidy level is that yeah the sort of... it's a smaller format more portable <laughs> but yeah it's it's the same sort of tabloids i think a crossword or two see we have in this country <laughs> um um those re- very real life magazines which you guys will not have seen not being people of a certain age but i saw when i was at the the, the pcc so you know now and oh take uh, a break take a all break that all that yeah. those <laughs> magazines were big for a while but as as technology has come along the market has uh, has has thinned out i mean if we're having this conversation in 10 years time what do you think if we're having this conversation in 10 years time will it all be retrospective will it all be do you remember the good old days even neil Mukherjee will be saying the good old days of the lrb at the moment i, c- I can't really think straight because I'm, I'm busy thinking <laughs> of um, 
<laughs> I'm thinking of the school friend who hits on this brilliant ruse of um, get you know the tips column in in those True Life magazines. Yes, I do. She she would get all the I've tips from one. one magazine and then submit them to a different magazine. No. Yeah. Can I tell you one of the tips? Successfully? Oh, yeah. Can I tell you one of the tips? I remember this from reading these magazines at work. It, instead of having after-dinner mints, take blobs of toothpaste and freeze them. <laughs> you, could do, like, you could write, you could do initials and, yeah. you know. It's, 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 I thought <laughs> we were going to be talking about stinging flies. I know. Oh. Stinging flies. I love stinging flies. Stinging flies, brilliant. Of magazines. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Tell us why you like stinging flies. Let's elevate the tone briefly then. Oh, stinging flies, brilliant. I, mean, I think it's edited by Sally Rooney now, isn't Not it? Not anymore. I think she was just for 2018. I don't right. know who sure. it is now. I suspect she won't need But to you do just anything. get just a, a beautiful mix of new of new writers, new voices. And the quality is Fiction really and high. non-fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and does it make? I mean, how big? How, how big is this type of? I'm, I'm interested in those type of magazines because you hear about them and you see copies and they kind of look lovely. Grant is a bit like this back in mm-hmm. its pomp, probably, where they kind of have the the status of books, because there there's not many. It's not published every. I mean, how often Sting and Fly publishes a quarter of a year or something like that? So it's mm. basically a book, really, mm. isn't it? A mini, beautifully produced book. Is that a thing? Do you think? I mean, is that is that could ever use that ever be scalable to something bigger, or is it just very high end, very high culture that's targeted at a very small audience? Well, there'll certainly be people who work in publishing. Everyone who works in publishing will probably have a subscription to Stinging Fly because it's all it of the, all of the new it? yeah Several all of the good new it. voices yeah. seem to start out there. Do we have one in the office? Yeah, I think yeah, we do. We yeah, do. we do. I never yeah. see it. Who, who snaffles well, it? Well, we sort of take it in turns to snaffle it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> 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 but the importance and the importance of of talking about Stinging Fly and of people taking out subscriptions to Stinging Fly is 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 drilled home to us this year because uh, Tin House, which is sort of like an American equivalent of Stinging Fly, was based in in Oregon, has folded this year has it? Um, after twenty years. Um, the and last sport, issue was in June. And Sports Illustrated, which uh, Ben Markovitz mentions, there was a big news story last week that said. They're effectively, it's been bought by someone else and it's being gutted. Mm. Because to run these, I mean, the New York has a million subscribers. I wonder how much money it makes because it will spend an awful lot of money producing that. Mm. Um, that and, and obviously Sports Illustrated can't make money because they're cutting half of it. There is a financial restriction on all of this, I would imagine. Um, talking of the New Yorker, which just finish end on this because it praises the TLS. <laughs> Did you say to people not to praise the TLS, Kaz, by the way? Or just no, leave, just leave just them to it. I just left them to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but Quite right. But there was, no, there was no guidance in either direction. No. So Stephen Brown uh, says the New Yorker, currently in a down phrase, where have you gone, Thurber, Benchley, O'Hara, Salinger, but still the best thing to settle on the couch with, New Yorker. Fine woodworking, he likes. A model for how to teach techniques in print and the TLS, essentially the same paper that Virginia Woolf wrote for which is good enough for me And Virginia Woolf is writing for us again, sort of She is, we've we've published a book of Virginia Woolf's essays on all sorts of things Out on November 28th Well done, Russ (laughs) Thank you It's commercial (laughs) things like that which might mean in ten years' time the TLS is still here Hurrah for that Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. As literary magazines go, Granter is comparatively nubile and fresh-faced, scampish 40 years old, which is nothing when you think about it and you work for a groaning 120-year-old geriatric. There may be other literary magazines turning 40 this year too, but I just can't think of any of them by name. Anyway, Alex Clark, literary hack extraordinaire, once was the editor of Granter back in 2008, so she was the perfect person to delve into its archive and find some gems from its history. And she did. She's here with Thea and me now. Alex, hello. Hi. Did I okay the the hack extraordinaire? Literary, literary <laughs> hack extraordinaire. <laughs> okay, I, feel, right. I thought that was quite... <laughs> that, that changes yeah, everything. Yeah, let's go. I felt, right, I felt right. the literary as and extraordinaire were, kind of nightly, nicely bracketed <laughs> the word hack. Let's talk about Granter. What's... Because people might not know about it. I mean, a lot of people will know about it. It's been around a long time. But what, how did it begin? What was it trying to do? What's the purpose of Well, Granta. I see you flexing your, you know, we're a very old literary magazine. You've got to give us some muscles. Give, yeah, give us something. But actually, of course, it started in 1889. Yeah. I didn't know that. It didn't. Well, it did. It started and then it stopped. But and sure, then it it was, there was a hiatus and in its revamped 40-year-old edition, it is quite a different beast, obviously. So, what was it in eighteen eighty nine? Well, it was a sort of a student mag, really, but of you know of a, of a sort of literary bent, um, with all sorts of you know luminaries who wrote for it and did. I think A. A. Milne was the editor at one yeah, point, but that, yeah. you know that sort of a thing. Um, but I certainly don't think it was the kind of place that you would have expected to find an issue called dirty realism, for example, no, or more dirty realism. So what happened to it? What so so Bill Booford takes it over exactly. So well, it went into abeyance, you know, and I I'm, I imagine it went the way of all things, you know, lack of interest, lack of funds. That's what yeah. always happens. Um, and then Bill Booford, um, who at that point was was um, in the kind of in academia in Cambridge, revives it uh, and decides that it is going to be an absolute breath of fresh air in the literary world and bring us... Fiction was, was kind of how it, you know, its starting point, that's what he wanted. And, of course, he wanted to bring loads of American writers into it, which he did, um, and he just wanted to kind of shake things up. And was it a success in, in those terms? Well, I suppose that really depends how you measure success. Indeed. I mean, what was amazing about going into the archive, which is as yet 
uncatalogued. It's just been acquired by the British Library. So it's kind of been sorted into an order, but nobody knows absolutely where everything is is in it. So what you get is a kind of the wonderful curators there just kind of bring you some gems and then you say, well, could I poke about in that box? But it is just box upon box upon box upon box. And it's commissions as well as meeting minutes. Yep, and yep exactly. The whole thing. So there's correspondence in, correspondence out, um, meeting minutes, which are kind of... I mean, obviously, there weren't any minutes at the beginning. <laughs> you know, it was kind of back of the envelope. Was it just kind mates of kind of to get... I mean, there's, yeah. you, you talk a bit about mm. the financial arrangements of it, that the reason Granter was late publishing because you are always late. Yes, checks are being typesetter. Re- checks are being rejected. Well, you feel like the typesetter, because uh, these turn out, the details are actually more fascinating yeah, in a way are, yeah. than Philip Roth saying, no, my dear fellow, I don't have you know a piece for you this month or whatever. That's actually more fascinating when you read a kind of tirade from a typesetter who has clearly just had enough. And actually, it's quite a long letter of which I've just kind of quoted a bit, but he's essentially going, get your act together. Yeah. I mean, he actually says, get your act together. Which, of course, people have been saying to, to editors and backbench people for all of, since journalism's existence, you, you, you've, yeah. you've not sorted out, you're, you're missing your deadline. Yeah, yeah. copy flow, etc. Yeah, Where's your going. staff? Where's the money? And editors, of course, like to go... But the words, yeah, the words. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't come down to that level. I'm thinking of a great ideas. Uh, what are your favourite discoveries? Then uh, I thought the fantasy commissioning. Oh, it's just brilliant! It's isn't just it? absolutely magnificent. Because we've all done it. Oh God, I was thinking How exactly the same. How many times have you, you know, in your august career as as, as also a hack extraordinaire, yeah, yeah, yeah. have you yeah. not sort of that an editor has wandered by? Of course, you are the editor now. Uh, somebody wandered by and go, "Do you think you could get Martin Amos to write this piece?" And you yeah. think, "Well, what I'll do is bring yeah. the speaking clock for three days, and then I'll write it." Yeah, <laughs> right. We'd- do I do that? Do you think, Tia? Am I a bit? Unrealistic? I think we all do we that all, a little think, bit. Yeah, I'm not sure it's me. I think me. we know when. I think, yeah, I think we're all guilty. Of, but of I do that. think there is a certain aspect of it is worth punting a hundred. Absolutely. Of course. I get, mean, who one. wouldn't want to read Gabriel Garcia Marquez on cockfighting? And I love the fact that well, co- him, I assume, <laughs> yeah. because he just <laughs> he didn't, didn't write that write piece. It. <laughs> I love the fact that they got it written anyway. Like, well, once you've had an idea, I mean, but that's the way it goes, isn't yeah, it? So yeah. Who would be brilliant to write this? Yeah. Well, obviously, he you would. have names on a post-it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And you go down, and of course, <laughs> when you are the person who ends up writing that piece, yeah. you're always like, God, was like, you tell yourself you were second, you'd settle you for tenth, you fear that you might be fiftieth. I mean, I don't think Charles Nickel was who did end up writing that piece. No, and, and, and it's a really good piece. And who else was it? Because I mean, the headline is Angela Carter on wrestling. Yeah, well, of course there is. I mean. You know, this kind of thing obviously bears fruit, doesn't it? Because you have the kind of famous issue of Granter in which um, Ian Hamilton writes about Gaza, Gaza Agonistes. You know, you yeah. and, and there's, I mean, that's what became, in a way, um, Granter's hallmark. And I remember, I mean, it, it sort of spreads through the industry, doesn't it? I remember somebody once saying to me, oh, God, I'm a middle-aged man. I'm going to be sent to do something interesting like climbing, <laughs> becoming a steeplejack or something. Yeah. And you just sort of fear this. But, of course, when you've got these amazing writers, yeah. like the bit where they want to send um, Bill Bryson uh, to Butlins... Somewhere cold oh, is that what it was? Somewhere, somewhere cold and miserable. miserable. And then he also, at one point, he, I, think there's a, I don't know if we, we eventually could include this. He had the space to include this. But he kind of laments that although he would love to go to Butlins, for Christmas and New Year. Alas, he's too busy this year. Yeah. So that's, you know, but yes, somewhere cold and miserable. Of course, Bill Bryson's kind of made a career out of going somewhere cold and miserable, well, well, hasn't he? Well, indeed, you know. the thing he's, I mean, the first three books is basically that, isn't it? Yeah. It's America, yeah. Europe and Britain, where he's mordant about 
being yeah. a bit miserable. Yeah, and exactly. I love, and, I, and I love Bill Bright. Oh, I, yes, I mean, none I, of this is... I've tried to commission him and you he's actually very nice and you get a reply saying... Do you want saying, him to be a steeplejack? I've tried and... Oh. and then, this then is all fell. going into our archive, which <laughs> we'll yeah. hand on uh, to the it, British Library. Yeah, exa- yeah, I hope my emails are not <laughs> Well, this is the interesting thing. I mean, I, you know, apart from the fact that there are, as I said, just boxes and boxes and boxes and it is as yet catalogued, uncatalogued and the... Um, the BL think it's going to take somebody like a year to do it. You know, a person. It'll be a person who has that whole job. That is their job. So, and do they commit to making all this pub? I mean, so oh presume, yeah, have yeah. they checked to see there's nothing really embarrassing in it? I mean, do, well, does that, do well you... I suppose that will be part of the archivist's job. I mean, to put stuff. Well, actually, comes a very very interesting thing. Do you want when you come to kind of live these? You can't put people's home addresses, for no. example, into the public. But imagine domain. if someone had said something disparaging about a woman or disparaging about. You know, it's not impossible over 40 years. Well, it's entirely possible it's entirely in fact it actually happens. Plausible. Yeah, and what, what are the ethics of... Yeah, I do mean, you, you can't sort of I mean, do you say, strike it from the record. Have Granter said to the British Library, when you give up your archives, do you say, warts and all, if you find that an editor said, you know, use some slur... I'm not, I'm not saying that it's possible to Granter, but it's not impossible when these are genuine minutes and genuine straw, scrawls that and jottings. That started in the 70s? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think I have kind of alluded to the fact that there is a certain machismo about. Can about I say? Some can I say how you? Can I say how you refer to that, uh, Alice yes, Clark? Because uh, it, uh, there was a lot of penises at Granta, is what you say. Well, not so many penises that they couldn't say no to Philip Roth, though. Did they say no to Philip Roth? They did at one point. I mean, there's an awful. And again, you know this kind of thing. It's that awful sort of constantly asking people for stuff. Have you got any stuff? Would you like to write a piece on? Mm. And then sometimes, perhaps years later, you know, you do get a piece and you're, you think, oh, this isn't quite what we need. <laughs> we've, so it's quite a lot of that. We've spiked, since my time editing the TLS, one properly commissioned piece. You know, a couple of reviews have gone, gone by the wayside, but a genuine commissioned essay. I don't think you can say that unless uh, you uh, give us a little hint. I know you're not going to say I'm who not it say the is, name. but okay. you have to give us okay, a I'll bit give you the of hint. detail. So, um, there's a kind of nice happy ending to it uh, as well, but we, we commissioned a famous novelist, British novelist, to write about the general election in 2017. And I, I wanted this novelist to write about sort of state of the nation, the feelings of just being being a person who could write well and be sensitive to the environment about how it felt to be around during this election. This piece comes in, um, I think it's on a week before publication, and it doesn't mention really the election <laughs> at all. It doesn't mention Jeremy Corbyn at all, even though it was, you know, his, 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 in the rise a bit of Jeremy Corbyn and his, his subsequent not quite making it. And it was just wibbly. It was just awful. I mean, and uh, the, the editor who I had to deal with just said, I just can't do anything with this. And, I, and I'd cleared the first three pages of the paper because it was the election issue. Uh, that uh, is editor's worst nightmare, think, isn't it? And it was a complete. Uh, yeah, and it was yeah. already. Uh, do, you yeah. remember, do you remember reading it? It was. It was. It was irredeemably bad. And I was thinking, oh, what are we going to do? And then, in a, this is this sounds ridiculous, but I promise you, it's true. Uh, we'd had a complaint from Martin Scorsese three months before about a film review we'd done of his films, and he'd sent a complaint that we made a couple of mistakes in it. And Adam Mars Jones had made a remark that uh, films weren't as good at novel as novels at interiority or something like that and he'd complained we'd published this letter and I'd emailed him back saying well if you want to make the case why films are an art that's undervalued we would of course run anything that you'd want to write about it <laughs> and honestly the day after we'd had this 
disastrous arrival in my inbox popped 1600 words oh my god perfectly written by martin scorsese about why film is a undervalued art form that required virtually nothing to it so we made a whole film issue those moments are so rare never ever gonna happen no it's not it's not but you but also you still had to go back to the well-known novelist to say so you know we can't print this, right? Do you get a bit of this? It's a kind of gossipiness, isn't there, to, to any form of editing? Oh, yeah, we all editing. know it. I mean, you know, fourth wall of journalism. You have to take it down sometimes. You were making a point on Twitter about about the literary world closing ranks. Yes. About the Booker Prize. About the Booker Prize. But journalism also closed. I know a very well-known journalist uh, always thought we should have a site called rawcopy.com. Which would oh, be interesting. Which would be brilliant, wouldn't it? And I don't know if anybody else here has sat watching journalists collect awards and think, yeah, well. well can I tell you something? <laughs> I've seen that copy when it comes in. Yes. There's, well, a, there's, there's a phrase which, our, which, I, which I hear all the time from uh, hardworking editors when I like a piece. I always say, I really like that piece. And they go, there's always a point. Should have seen it when it came in. Yeah. Although <laughs> now you just leave the pause and you don't even. Yeah, need I don't to need to that say that it. But that's true. So there, are there some. People are rewarded for quality of writing, which is effectively an editing job, do you think? Well, I don't know, I think we all yeah. know that, don't yeah. we? We all know that. But it does. This is sounding very much, of, you know, this is from myself. <laughs> this is sounding very much what have the Romans ever done for us. It really <laughs> thank, God for, thank God for editors. <laughs> I feel kind of, yeah, thank God for us, guys. <laughs> uh, do you think the literary world does close? Right? So we could talk about the Booker Prize because we have a piece in the paper this week. Yeah, uh, I thought it was a brilliant piece. It's Sam um, Jordison from um, the publisher of Duck's Newburyport. Uh, and it's not a moan about not winning. It's a, it's a really ang. I mean, he's genuinely angry about, and upset. I think yeah, kind of traumatized and out of and pocket. Confused the, about I this ridiculous that. decision to. We talked about it last week on, on the podcast to give to two books, and also effectively, as Afwa Hirsch said, who's one of the judges, they gave it to Margaret Atwood for her sort of sustained brilliance over a career. Mm, mm. Uh, and it's five judges. It obviously was possible to give it to one winner and they didn't does it matter i mean i think it's ridiculous and embarrassing and and, and shouldn't have been done but does it matter in in, in the scheme of things Alex, you know? well i mean in the you know when we say this what scheme of things is that you know yeah. in, the, in the global scheme of things well kind of no in terms of when you're talking about kind of level playing fields and closing ranks i think it does and actually what i think is that we should use this as, as I believe they say, a teachable moment. <laughs> and one of the things I think is that um, Sam Jordison has written really eloquently about things that people just generally might not know that much about, about how much it physically costs you yeah. to have an author shortlisted. £5,000 you know, or 6000 At least, the and then that's all sorts I of other stuff. Yeah, and then the expenses all. of their travel just to massive. the various They're engagements. They're massively out of pocket. And I really think this is a moment to say to the Booker Prize and to other large prizes, when you open your doors to small independent presses, do not charge them the same fees as you charge HarperCollins, Penguin Random house you don't have to i tell you what if you're short of money we'll all go without our starter at the great big knees up in the guild yeah. hall do you well, know what got, i mean if you've got 50 grand to give to a winner 
you've got 10 grand to support a small you really press have. To, to be and part I of it. You really have. And I just don't think that the there should be a sliding scale. It does. It levels yeah. the playing field. It doesn't make it unfair for them. It levels it. It means you're actually not bankrupting things because you can't just say, well, you know, they know the rules. No. Well, what is a small press to do? Say to say to a novelist, I want to publish you, but we can't enter you for the yeah. Booker Prize. It's just, and that is the thing we could actually do something about. And also, it also works in favour of the bigger publishers who can then say, as was the case with um, with Sam Jordison with Galley Beggar Press, the big publishers can come along and say, look, you're not going to be able to do this. Why don't you let us come, take this book from you, publish it as our own book, yeah. and then we can submit it for those prizes. Because what his piece makes you realise is it's not just based on... It should just be five people in a room reading a book, reading six books and saying which the one they like the most. Yes. And that's really all it boils yeah, down to, and isn't I think it? Yeah, and I think, to be fair, the Booker Prize Foundation would say that's absolutely right. I don't think they... I don't blame them. I don't think they are edging people towards making Lifetime Achievement Awards at all. I think they're probably horrified. Do you feel this happened. was a Lifetime Achievement Award? I mean, Sam makes the case that it's a Lifetime Achievement Award for both of them. Because Afra Hershey's column talks about they're both, un- on one hand, Bernadine mm. underrated for a great career and other one, Margaret Atwood, correctly rated for, for a, a great career. And mm. those two were kind of taken together. Yeah, I think that there's something in that. I mean, I certainly think that it would just have been a better thing all round to give Bernadine Everisto. Do you think? Prize. Have you read the book? Yeah, I have. I've I read it. It's I th- a great I've, book. Yeah, I thought it was good. Um, and I think if you feel strongly enough about that book that you want it to win, then let it win alone. Yes, I do. But I actually came away feeling, in a way, just much more sorry for the four other shortlisted books. Who just admit, I mean, obviously, when a prize is won, the shortlist falls away to a certain extent. Yeah. But they fell off a cliff. And does this matter? I mean, it links back to the grants. I mean, these they were kind of, I mean, this is fun in some ways, but it's kind of important. You know, we're talking this whole podcast about the value of magazines and maybe mm. they're disappearing and and this whole issue of the TLS is about that. Do you think it matters that there are things like book prizes at one level, but more specifically things like grants are existing? Ways Does for it, books, books, yeah. oh no, ways for writing yeah. to get recognition that is not just down to one book in between hard or soft covers. Yeah, yeah I do. And of course, grant- I think a literary culture is the most important thing that we have, you know, beyond that, that sits around individual books, of course, yeah. And, and you have to accept that if you put the word best in in a title on something like with Granter's uh, Best of Young British yes. Novelists, you know, once a decade, that helps. It, sure. it can certainly Absolutely, help. So it's it can't performs help but a function. But equally, if you yeah. remember, Alex, we got you to do, because really there's this feeling that we all had that that list, that Granter 83 list, which had Ishiguro and Amos and mm-hmm. Swift and Rushdie and all of that lot, had cast such a long shadow, too long a shadow. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we asked loads of people to sort of come up with other novelists that they were excited about, and you wrote that that, oh, yeah, that, that, right. that, that piece about it, and that shows you the impact the grant has had that it was necessary to do. Because a lot of the a lot of what is considered good, Salman Rushdie's still on the Booker, uh, you know, shortlist, yes. however many years From after that, that 80, yeah, thirty-seven yeah. years later, yeah. that shows the impact of Granter. And, you know, well, yes, and, and, you know, extract from Midnight's Children published in it and great support for his early work and early career. Yeah, I think it is important. It's so interesting to think that that list originally started essentially as a kind of marketing tool. Uh, <laughs> Alex, what a great pleasure it was re- reading this. Uh, and Oh, talking. it was fun to do. Yeah, to... I actually have to say halfway through it, halfway through the kind of going through the boxes, I thought, why have I wasted my life being a literary hack extraordinaire? I could have just <laughs> sat in among boxes looking at fascinating correspondence being for 50 years. would be fantastic, yeah, wouldn't yeah. it? Sitting around boxes. That's a, it's the dream. <laughs> That's the dream. Alex Clark, thank you very much indeed. Welcome.
This year, Lydia Davis, best known for flash fiction and masterly translations of Proust and Flaubert, has been unprecedentedly absorbed by her garden. Specifically, she's become acutely aware of the life of what many would call weeds, but which she calls volunteers, who, in Lydia's telling, manifest independence and decisiveness in cultivating a patch of their own choosing, coming in overlapping relays to perform some superficially unobvious role. She quotes Henry David Thoreau's admiration of how each waited a whole year and then blossomed the instant it was ready and the earth was ready for it. Indeed, Thoreau looks over her shoulder every time she bends to examine a new arrival, whispering his observations about the plant's properties and purpose for Lydia to add to her own. Does this week's beautiful short essay constitute a kind of manifesto against weeding, then? I, for one, certainly hope so. Lydia Davis joins us on the line from New York State now. Hello, Lydia. Hello. Hello. Is your garden in view? Only if I stand up and look out the window. I'm just wondering how to picture you. Have you always admired Thoreau, or has he he sort of only recently fully clicked with you? Well, actually, I admired him very early on when I was a young, a youngster, a teenager, or even preteen, perhaps, but teenager anyway. And he actually inspired me to run away from boarding school um, briefly. Amazing. Uh, I had read about Walden and I dreamed of living alone in the woods and, and <laughs> just reading and being self-sufficient among the trees. And took off one night with a backpack full of Shakespeare and rolls from dinner. I don't know how I thought I was going to survive. but <laughs> Who cares? That is, a br- that is an absolutely <laughs> magnificent thing to do, though, isn't it? It was exciting and scary. They, they did find me after about three miles of walking and bring me back. So but... not, not after two years, two months and two days. <laughs> yeah. no, I... But I had... I had a plan. I had a map. I knew where I was going and everything. I read, reread Rolden again recently, and I wondered whether it's. I wasn't disappointed with it, but there's large chunks of it that just didn't sing at all to me. I wondered whether the idea of Walden is greater than the, the, the actual book itself. I don't know. Do you do you love the texture of the book, Lydia? Well, you know, I have to admit it's been years and years since I read it, so I can't answer with a from a fresh reading, but it must have inspired me, whatever he said. I think people have recently turned against him a bit because they idealized him or, you know, early on and then learned that he went home to his mother for dinner. (laughs) And had his washing done. Yeah. But that's okay. I mean, uh, (laughs) it it turns out that Walden Pond is actually very close to the town centre. It's really not that far away. I looked on a map. So, you know, it's quite natural. Oh, fair enough. Um, his his retreat, though, to Walden Pond, I mean, that was the reaction to his times. It was desire to be away from the kind of the corruption and inequity of, of, of the state at the time. Does your garden, does your gardening, does that represent something similar to you? Well, I suppose. I mean, he also wanted to live a more concentrated and deliberate life, I think. And I think that's true of me, too. Now, I've pulled in, and it is a bit of a reaction, certainly to global warming, climate change. I'm not flying anymore. I just decided last spring. And I was quite a traveler overseas. Now I have to look at my community right around me and see what's here. And then it starts with my yard and a more intensive uh, concentration on my yard and what I can do here. Do you think that's a, a viable future for everyone where people will have to narrow their horizons? Because of course, one of the things 
that you, you're most famous for is translation, the idea of, of broadening people's horizons. And do you think we're going to have to collectively say, let's focus in nearer to home because travelling further afield is no longer the correct moral thing to do? Well, I think it's both at once. It's it's more complicated because at the same time that I've narrowed, you know, physically staying closer to home, my mind is 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 sort of adventuring out into territories I hadn't experienced before. It's very interesting, it turns out, to limit yourself and see what you can do with what's here and the people who are here and the places that are nearby. So I feel the opposite of narrowing. And of course, we have at the moment so much technology that allows us to to be in touch with people at a distance and to communicate long distance, to work long distance. So we ought to be able to stay home. I like the idea that you're. This is a defence of weeds, and uh, <laughs> not being too rigorous and ordered. I'm no gardener at all, Theo. You're a bit of a gardener, aren't you? I mean, I I I'd like I'd like to say I am. Yeah. But I think I'm I'm letting the weeds do their thing. I'm I'm following <laughs> Lydia Davis's uh, advice and <laughs> letting the weeds uh, do what they need to do. Is I this a moral thing? Is this a moral case for weeds? Do you think? Lydia? <laughs> no, it was it was just a fascination with what what was here. You know the richness that was here. So instead of mowing it, um, I wanted to see what would grow, and it's just been like a bounty. Uh, you know, hundreds of of plants and i'm not saying you know we couldn't we couldn't quite bring ourselves to let all the lawns go up and grow up and have a wild landscape here but so it's been a little more cautious a patch here and and weeds around the, the bases of trees i mean there does have to be a bit of management because if you if you let them just completely do their thing then as far as i can tell anyway and as i say my my knowledge is limited something will take over and not give the other things a chance to thrive as well and that's you know weeds weed, yeah, among I, the weeds as well Yes, and, and I'm always told, well, this is meant to be forest, so if you don't do anything, it will revert to forest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and for a while, I thought, I'll let it do that. Um, that was actually a year or two ago, the meadow. I said, let's just leave it alone. But then it got overrun by a horrible vine, like sort of wild uh, blackberry or something that clearly was going to take over the entire meadow. So then I had to start mowing that. Have you read Weeds in Defence of Nature's Most Unloved Plants by Richard Maybe? Not yet. Not well, yet. I mean, that That's... sounds that sounds very much like it should be on, on your shelf. And it's interesting because it, it gives a really clear lesson in how loaded the language that we use to talk about weeds is. I mean, weeds itself is a very loaded term, isn't it? It's kind of oh, absolutely. parasites. I don't, I don't but use it. Yeah, he, and you call them volunteers. He calls them outlaws and rebels. Or volunteer wild plants, you know, I like the, the full. But I did I did read um, Wilding by Isabella Tree. Yeah. Mm. And that was that was very very encouraging in a way that and if you do give nature a chance, it'll rebound and, and all the creatures that live in a certain habitat will come back, or not all of them, but lots of them. So has this new approach altered your sense of of things, of of time passing? It's slowed it down, I suppose, in, in, in a nice way. Each day is, is very intensively spent, you know, outdoors and not so much right now anymore, but watching and um, tending and 
And that does tend to slow things down in a nice way. I've got a horrible confession to make, Lydia. I've got plas- yes. I've got plastic grass. Oh God! What in my garden? <laughs> I can't believe you just well, admitted to uh, that. I've got three children under <laughs> ten, and so the thinking was that uh, when it rains, they can run around outside straight afterwards rather than churning into a mud thing. But I'm not very happy about it. Do you think that we are becoming not just me personally? You can attack me personally if you like, but just <laughs> just generally, we're we're, we're slightly progressively moving further away from nature except when people take steps like you do that it's kind of an extreme you're either reverting back to wilding or you're completely cosseted away from from nature well i think maybe like like many things the last say 80 years we've we've moved away from nature but i think we're going to go back because there's there's so much interest now in say having green rooftops and we're going to have to plant trees in cities and you know more trees and more trees because of the climate and um, I think so I think it's going to go back the other way I think there's a lot of interest in um, in getting closer to nature again it's it's had to be very deliberate unfortunately you know let's go out and take a forest bath you know which is what people do around here not meaning literally bathing but but immersing themselves spiritually in the woods do they call it that they call it a forest bath yes i think that's right and it's um it's a little odd but um it it just means people are returning and meanwhile everyone listening to this should go out and let let weeds grow in their garden well, some weeds and some. Yeah. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to tear up the. Can I wait till my children are a bit older and then tear up the the, the plastic grass? Oh, you but your, your children ought to find out about all the wonderful things that grow in yeah, a yard. That's true. We have plants. I feel like I sound like a terrible person. There's a park nearby. I've just got so many questions about the grass. Does it hurt if they fall on? No, it? it's soft. It's it's basically it's just convenient. Does it sweat? It, no, it doesn't sweat. <laughs> it, it, I, I, I'm almost sure it gets hotter in the summer. That, that it is, probably does. Yeah, that, that is true. All right. It's dangerous. <laughs> they, they, they measured temperatures in one city, maybe it was in the southwest here. Um, the temperature around trees, the temperature at a sidewalk or on asphalt, and then the temperature in grass. And grass was by far the cooler, yeah. the cooler surface. So you oh. might want to think about all right, all right, Lydia, you've... you've we'll, you've... we'll take this off air, I think. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to shout at me afterwards. Uh, Lydia Davis, it's, it's a l- really charming uh, piece, and it's um, and maybe we can come back to you uh, uh, after another season and you can See tell us... and tell Yeah, tell us what happens then. Well, I think I'm actually going to follow up with another piece about how to have a garden that looks nice despite the untidy uh, weeds. I could really so, do with that, yeah. so please, you're, you're, <laughs> please do. Lydia, you're not only a great translator of Proust, which I read, I read actually a couple of months ago. Uh, you're now going to be the TLS's gardening correspondent. Oh, wonderful, wonderful! <laughs> well, I'll be deal. happy with that. That sounds like a deal to me, <laughs> Lydia you. Davis. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye bye. That's all we have time for today. Our thanks go to Lydia Davis, Catherine Morris, and Ros Deneen and Alex Clark. Get subscribing to the TLS. Having listened to all that stuff about the need to support journalism, you'd have to be an utterly heartless person not to this week we have alan rusbridger of the guardian formerly on snowden and the definitive white swipe at the booker prize from the publisher of one of the losing finalists next week it's philosophy thea's favorite we'll consider ourselves to have failed if we don't deal with democratic and constitutional theory in a way that even thickies like me can understand until then from thea and from me goodbye
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.